We're here to showcase some of the amazing work that some indie bio founders have been working on for the last four months, leading up to Demo Day, which will be July 15th. Um, we're excited to, to debut these companies. We have Alan from California Cultured, Jessica from Sundial, and Jen Yu from Lipid joining us. So today we're gonna talk about these food entrepreneurs, their origin story, what, what they're trying to work on, and uh, what their entrepreneurship journey has been throughout this last four months and into the future. The premise here is food tech, as we know, in the last couple of years has really exploded. Lab-grown meats, plant-based foods, all these precision ingredients. You're probably been enjoying Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers that are now in grocery stores everywhere, uh, and which really kicked up during the pandemic as well as more and more people chose to go plant-based even if they're not vegetarian because a flexitarian diet has its benefits for both human and planetary health. So today we'll talk about some really new products and really new angles out of what the future plant-based and cell-based foods are going to be. And uh, yeah, let's start with Jessica and tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the sector and then what you're working on. Hi everybody, my name is Jessica and I'm the CEO of Sundial Foods. At Sundial, we've developed a novel processing technology for creating plant-based whole cuts of meat complete with skin, meat, and bone. So this actually started uh, out of my university. I was an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley when I met my co-founder in a class in 2019, we started working on a group project in school, which eventually spiraled into this company. My co-founder is a PhD in plant and microbial biology from Cal, and I have my undergraduate degree now as three weeks ago in molecular and cell biology. Congrats. Can you tell us a little bit about what is the product you're making? Yeah, definitely. So at Sundial, the first thing we're making is plant-based chicken wings. So. The basic premise is that for plant-based meats, there's a single processing method that's generally used to create most of the plant-based meat textures that you see on the market. It's called high moisture extrusion. It's a really cool process, but it is limited in terms of the form factor of the product that you can get out and also often requires a lot of different additives or additional processing steps, which can make it difficult to keep a clean ingredients list. So the process that we've developed allows us to have more of a one and done approach where we can go back to the basics with our plant ingredients and look at what's in them naturally. So their starches, their fibers, their fats, and figure out how we can combine fractions of these uh, in order to create a meat-like texture in one bite using a different pressure process, which is not quite as high energy as extrusion. And so using this, we're able to generate sort of the fibers that you feel in every individual bite that make it taste like meat, but also more three-dimensional structures and whole cuts of meat. And the reason we're starting with chicken wings is because it's something that uh, in general, American consumers tend to love. That's not really out there yet for plant-based. Typically, you can get cauliflower wings or a boneless chicken wing option. Uh, so it's something that we're hoping to provide. Awesome. And you've actually been able to make some and prototype them in stores in Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about the customer feedback and what you've learned? Yeah, so we did test them for two months in about 40 grocery stores in Switzerland uh, last year, late 2020. And we got some super interesting feedback. We asked a lot of questions. Probably the leading question was, is the concept of a whole cut of meat with skin, meat, and bone made from plants something that's just currently too weird for consumers, which we were worried about because when you look at the product, it's a bit jarring or uncanny how much it looks like chicken. 
But we found that generally the appearance was something that was quite appealing for people, especially meat eating and flexitarian consumers, and that they liked that about the product. People also liked that it was clean label and high protein, which we were happy about. Interestingly, the product was chickpea based, and we thought this would be important because it's a differentiator from soy and pea. But consumers didn't seem to care so much about that as the fact that nutritionally uh, it was healthy and the macros were healthy. But the most interesting thing we learned about the product was that people really like the plant-based skin. I know it sounds sort of weird because it seems like something that is just a bit of a strange concept, but what it added to the product in terms of not only the initial appearance, but also the cooking experience and how similar it was to chicken and how complex the texture was when you were eating it was something that consumers really enjoyed about the product that made it stand out from other plant-based meats. And looking at the cell-based meat um, industry with the first cell-based chicken being approved in Singapore and selling, created by Just, what do you see as the near future of the convergence maybe between the cell-based meats, the plant-based meats, where do you position Sundial? That's super interesting and something that I think about a lot. I think that cell-based and plant-based meats both have the same end goal of combating animal agriculture for me, the personal mission behind Sundial, whether or not it's what we're uh, trying to deliver to consumers, is that we're trying to provide a way to give consumers a center of plate protein option that does not come from concentrated animal feeding operations, and that we believe that providing these kinds of alternatives will be more sustainable than relying on animals to provide a huge amount of protein in people's diets. And if it has to taste like meat in order for it to be appealing to consumers, then that's what we will do. And so that's what we've been working on. I think that salt-based meat is doing a similar thing. And I think that both of them will take chunks out of the animal agriculture industry, but not necessarily out of each other. I guess it remains to be seen and everybody's wondering, but I do feel that the consumer segments won't overlap that much. That's true. It's not a winner takes all. I think there's there's so many opportunities for chicken in, in the supply chain and across different geographies that every bit will actually help with the planet. Let's move on to intro Alan, who is working on a cell-based chocolate company. Alan, tell us a little bit about your journey of how you got into the food industry, what you're really driven by, and uh, what you're working on. Sure. That's sort of a little bit of an interesting story. About 15 years ago was when I first started to hear about cell-cultured anything. I was in one of the first labs in the U.S. to work on cell-cultured fish. And the more I learned about the reasoning of why making things cell-cultured, or why it can potentially be better, the more I fell in love with, with the field. I, I saw the challenges that, it, that the science has to go through, as well as I think almost the writing on the wall when it came with both climate change, deforestation, overfishing, ethical issues for animals and people. And you combine all these different separate elements and developing newer, better, healthier food systems started to make more and more sense. And that sort of put me on my journey working in different companies, working for different universities until today. But one of the major detours was one of my previous companies where we were looking to create a product made with protein sweeteners. 
and I saw chocolate as a very serious product, but in itself, by looking through the supply chain of chocolate, looking through the health concerns, or even the future of chocolate, I saw, wow, uh, it's a giant industry. It's, I think right now, 130 billion. It's growing uh, lightning quick. Over the past even year, there was uh, a giant growth in chocolate because not only do people see it as healthy, but chocolate was one of the things that honestly got people through another day of a lockdown pandemic and other things that were on their head. So I saw a giant demand, uh, a whole bunch of ethical environmental issues. I saw that I had the basic uh, technical and business background. I looked even deeper and I saw that all the talent actually necessarily to build the company to do the science to scale up was literally around me in where i am right now in davis and you know it just clicked it made so much sense to work on cell culture chocolate that we can make it healthier that it currently exists we can make it tastier we can make it a lot more cleaner and as the chocolate industry we think is going to go through severe disruptions over the next decade, we could provide a more sustainable and ethical product for both the corporates and I think the consumers who who are looking for these things in their foods that are eating today. Yeah, and for those who aren't familiar, can you tell us some of the problems with sourcing chocolate and the ethical problems, as you mentioned? Sure. So the way how chocolate is made, I would say close to Stone Age processes. It's pretty similar to how it was done hundreds of years ago, if not thousands of years ago, where the seeds get planted. It takes half a decade to a decade before the cocoa plant is known if it could actually produce any good quality pods and beans. And then the pods get picked by hand, they get split, they get Uh, put into fermentation pits, then they get dried, and then it gets ground with other ingredients. And that's usually, that was the old style process. And that's the current way how most of the chocolate of the world is made. And then all this happens in, in tens of thousands of tiny little farms all over the world from South America, Africa, and Asia, and there are also many large farms as well. Even the process to grow them for many places need to spray pesticides, antifungal agents, fertilizers to get them to grow. They need different light conditions, whereas when they're young, they need to grow in the understory, but when they mature, they need full light. And unfortunately, that incentivizes many farmers to go clear cut a lot of the surrounding forest area, specifically the incredibly vital rainforests. Since it's incredibly labor-intensive, many farmers and other groups basically look for very, very inexpensive labor. And that usually either falls down to kids or the more unscrupulous farmer that would result in slave labor. Whereas in many countries in West Africa, there are cumulatively over a million child slaves all involved in the chocolate growing industry. 
And that's besides for the amount of just regular kids helping their family grow chocolate. And even with all the claims by the giant corporate chocolate companies around the world, deforestation has increased, child labor has increased, the spraying of all these damaging and uh, toxic chemicals are still continuing, even uh, more now at a frenzy pace than ever before, because there are more viruses and insects that are attacking the cocoa crops. And these are just some of the problems. I'm not even talking about mycotoxins in the chocolate or that chocolate itself, the reason why it could get all these unique flavor profiles, it's a bioaccumulator. That means that it sucks up the heavy metals, many times lead, cadmium, and chromium in the surrounding soils. They accumulate in both the seed and the shell of where it goes into the chocolate making process. So everything from the beginning to the end is incredibly problematic. And on top of that, all the chocolate companies that we've basically talked to have said there's just not enough room, there's not enough farmers, there's not enough even region to grow uh, the growing customer base, which is right now very heavily, not only in the US and Europe, but increasingly in China and India, who are just starting to really get a hankering for chocolate. And over the next five, 10 years, that demand is only gonna increase massively. Thank you, Alan. Let's talk a little bit about plant cell culture. People have heard of people doing bacterial cell culture, people doing cell culture with mammalian cells. Where does plant cell culture as a technique lie in that spectrum? And what are some of the challenges for making this commercially viable? Well, plant cell culture was originally developed the same time as animal cell culture, roughly a hundred years ago but it was still very primitively done for a very long time. And only in the past maybe 20 to 30 years was there seriously some scientific advancements trying to figure out how to turn plant cells into production factories for food flavorings, for pharmaceuticals, for anti-cancer agents, for dozens of different products and, and ingredients. But it's not that widely known outside of a couple of core industries. One of the main reasons why was the way of how these cells were grown. They were usually grown using undesirable synthetic chemicals that are also found in many other herbicides. For instance, one of the most powerful uh, synthetic plant hormones is something called 2,4-D. It sounds pretty innocuous, but it's one uh, of the the main ingredients of uh, a weed killer called Roundup. And the reason why it's so effective, it makes these weeds start accumulating so much nutrients so fast, it basically overloads their internal circuitry and kills them. So traditionally, this was done in a very small amount of plant cell culture. But honestly, in the last 20 to 30 years, many different countries have started putting very, very tight restrictions on the use of these chemicals in food and ingredients. And the entire field was stagnant. And it really took 
some interesting companies and scientists and academics to really gently push it forward. And it's sort of quietly chugged along while the, the traditional fermentation such as yeast or microorganisms or even the newer cell culture food and ingredient products from meat are, are sort of becoming a little bit well known. So what we're able to do is take advantage of the many different metabolomic processes as well as internal processes that are happening in plant cells and we can make them not necessarily just produce one specific compound, but we can make them produce thousands of, of, of natural compounds all at the same time without changing the DNA of the plant cell or without putting in any undesirable ingredient. And our thought was, imagine you could replace these synthetic ingredients with actually food-grade ingredients because there are many plants that we love and eat that have tons of natural plant hormones in them, but no one has actually looked how useful they can be for plant cell agriculture. So in essence, what we're doing is a cross between clean meat and vertical agriculture. That's how we tend to look at it. We basically have to give the cells food. We grow them in large tanks and you need to give them the right environment to grow and the right way that their flavors could develop as well. So for us, it's sort of a learning process. And at the same time, we're also going to be publishing lots of very cool scientific advances so the whole world could understand it a little bit better as, as we're developing the new field of plant cell culture for food. Awesome. I love how things are really cyclical with technology. Technology is you know, invented for some other purpose and then it goes out of fashion for some reason and now it's coming back. So thank you, Alan, for uh, spearheading the resurgence of plant cell technology. I would like to move on to Jen Yu from Lipid. And as we were just talking about technologies being cyclical, fats in our diet, definitely there's been a varying history of our relationship with fats. Saturated fat is bad, but then margarine and trans fat wasn't great. And now people are going back to the paleo or keto diets, incorporating more fats in their lives. And now one of the things that people have seen that is so crucial in the plant-based uh, foods is that they're missing the fat. A lot of times they're using coconut oil and that might not be creating the same property. So Genius company Lipid is working on a really new spin on incorporating fats into all these new plant-based and cell-based products that are happening. Genyu, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the food space and tell us what Lipid is working on? Thanks, Jen, for the introduction. So I'm Genyu, the co-founder and CEO of Lipid, and Lipid is de developing uh, alternative fat to make plant-based meat taste like a real meat. And my background, I, I did my PhD in chemical engineering at Cornell. And when I was at Cornell, I actually did a lot of research on carbon capture. And I, I did like interview more than 100 companies in three months to figure out whether there's a way to commercialize the technology that I was building in the, in the lab. And what I figured out is that why not just eat less animal meat, then we don't need to worry about capturing those carbon dioxide. 
and that's how I start my journey to step into the food place. And I, I did try a lot of like alternative protein and plant-based meat on the market. But as a meat eater myself, I have to be honest that the current product is not there yet to totally change my diet. And I happened to be a scientist, so I decided to like do more research and study in this space and to figure out why like the plant-based meat doesn't taste like a real meat. I'm also pretty lucky to meet my co-founder Michelle at Cornell that we find out that fat is the key missing part to elevate the taste, texture, and appearance of plant-based meat product. So that's how we start our journey. So yeah, what is the fat that you're making? So what we are making is actually we are making vegan oils to perform like animal fat. You can imagine you have olive oil and it's liquid, but with our special processing technology and formulation strategy, we can make it perform like a animal fat that can stand above cooking temperature. Like you can cook it above 165 degrees Celsius and the fat will still stay over there. Yeah, no matter how you cook it, like a real bacon fat. What do you plan on doing with this fat? And I guess from a business model, you guys aren't going straight to consumers, unlike Alan and, and Jessica are going to be working B2C. What is your strategy? Yeah, sure. As you see that there are already a lot of alternative protein company on the market that customers can buy right now. So I think the biggest impact we can make is to make those products better. So that's, that's why I, we decided that we will go more like a B2B business model and we will want to formulate our fat into current products and recipe and to help those plant-based meat. Today, we, we not only want to just sell fat, but we at the same time also want to improve the texture and also the flavors part of plant-based meat products right now. Awesome. So the three of you have been at IndieBio for the last four months. It's been quite a pressure cooker of with you know everything being thrown at you. What has been the biggest challenge or uh, biggest thing that you've learned during this program? Let's start with Jessica. I'm gonna say something slightly cheesy like leadership skills because coming into IndieBio, I had no idea how to lead a team only how to work with my co-founder on ideas that we both thought were really cool, which was always fun. But now that our company is expanding, we're developing more of an organizational structure and doing more managing and directing than necessarily the work ourselves. I think that's been the biggest challenge of the past couple months and also the biggest journey. That's great. Jen Yu? I, I would say it's talking to people. Since I'm a scientist and I stay in the lab for a long time and I only talk to kind of like equipment and materials, so I would say like talking to customers is a very big improvement for ourselves, like both me and Michelle. We talk with a lot of customers during those past four months and to understand their real need. So I, I would say that's like, like the biggest challenge for us, but I'm glad that we talk with a bunch of them and they, they like us. Yeah, definitely. That business development has to go hand in hand with the science to really um, hone in on your product. Alan, what has been your biggest learning over the last four months? and challenges that you faced? Our biggest challenge was figuring out the best go-to-market. We came in with some specific assumptions of launching a product as quick as possible, while at the same time developing the core technology. And by speaking with 
many different individuals, mainly investors, we we saw that we were going to have to put some of our product launch on hold and just focus on de-risking that initial technology as fast as possible. And there's always going to be time potentially to launch a product. But the main thought that we had to pivot to was if we're not going to launch a product now, what's going to be our go-to-market? So our thought, uh, and by just talking with many different customers, we saw that there was actually a very big need to make some ultra-premium chocolate ingredients that, that are very, very difficult and expensive to attain. Usually they run for about a a million dollars per kilogram. So that was our interesting discovery process. Definitely it's always from, I think, a little bit of the lean startup, just always constantly talk to customers and and find out their, their pain point. And we pivoted a lot from focusing more on flavors in the beginning to focusing on more and making these incredibly high value compounds that are potential uh, partners would like. Yeah, I think one of the big key elements with food is realizing how much it ties into our planet. And now with our existing supply chains and infrastructure, maybe each of the panelists can talk a little bit about how you see your product scaling and how the feedstocks and inputs and outputs work out. So let's go Jessica first. Well, we hope to become something that takes a significant chunk out of the chicken industry, which I suppose is true for almost every plant-based company targeting the animal uh, meat industry. For us, we're scaling because we have an entirely new technology. It's going to be a challenge for the next couple of years. However, we do see already just during the pandemic and the past couple of months that there have been huge shortages of, of things like chicken wings that we hope that we can provide plant-based options too. So it's a good moment for us to step in and and make this an option for people and show that it can replace the chicken meat. Jenya, do you want to comment about scaling and how you see yourself in the supply chain? Yeah, sure. So I I think from our end, we value it a lot that food sector is very different from other industries like life science or therapeutic, that every penny means a lot in food. And that's why we make this we did look at the technology development we decided to go with a plant-based route to develop a encapsulation way to make a alternative fat the feedstock and the material cost today is already cheap enough that we can compare with normal oil like normal coconut oil on the market so it's definitely scalable and we already is showing that the scalability like from several grains in February every day to right now we can produce kilograms every hour. So I think we are on the right track in terms of scaling up. Thank you everyone for tuning in. These companies and more will be presenting at Indie Bio Demo Day on July 15th. Hope to see you there.